Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, Christian, it's so great to celebrate you today, and we didn't uh, get a chance to applaud after that video, so let's do that. We're so grateful for you. Um, this young man is, is going to be a great pastor, and I, I'm really excited about uh, sending him out, and uh, who knows what he'll accomplish, but we'll watch him, and uh, you know, I, he's been privileged, I think, to be among one of the best staff teams that there is, and especially... Uh, to be around Bronwyn and Greg, who just are tremendous people with great hearts for ministry. And uh, I'm grateful you've had the opportunity, but it's been our opportunity, really. And we're truly grateful. It occurred to me in the context of this whole thing of defensiveness that your wife has a real, exa- you got a real advantage here, you know, because in any conversation, you can just say, I'm sorry, and nobody will know what you really mean by that. Are you saying that this is just who I am or that you really feel bad about something? So, man, uh, I, I suppose I wasn't prepared for the outpouring of response uh, to last week's uh, sermon. I don't know what created that. I don't think it was a great sermon or anything. I think I'm on a topic that uh, strikes a nerve. And what I, what I found out is uh, I was kind of relieved to discover it's not just me. Um, I, I just heard from a lot of people who sort of said, me too. And so I feel like we need to start a 12-step group, you know, Defensives Anonymous or something, uh, for all of us who seem to struggle with this so mightily and, and so much. Uh, now, of course, if you're, if you're a, a typical Washingtonian, you're a perfectionist. We're going to talk about that a little today. And, and that means you want to be right. And it probably also means you don't really enjoy other people telling you when you're not. And you can't always be right. I know that's a shock to many of us, but it's impossible to be. And, and it is this need to be right that is greater sometimes than the need to be righteous that is at the heart of the problem when it comes to defensiveness for believers. And we can talk about defensiveness for others. We can talk about it for the culture, and we can look at it sociologically. We can look at it politically. But the best lens is a personal lens in this. And, you know, what I find is the problem here, for me at least, is I really don't want to be dumb. I mean, I don't want to be perceived as dumb. I don't want to actually be dumb. I really never want to be seen as someone who just doesn't have a clue about what they're doing or or talking about, but I am never dumber than when I'm defensive. Never. I mean, I I can give you case by case by case that without a doubt, the dumbest things I've ever said or done relationally have been when I was defensive, when I was offended in some way and claimed my right to be offended. You know, once in a while, we'll get a window into this in human nature that I find fascinating. And uh, I really found this traffic jam on I-95 to be fascinating. Out of curiosity, was anybody in that? I'm, I'm, uh, last time we had sort of, the, I need to be careful here if you were. Uh, I, last time we had this happen, you guys remember the, the big, the big uh, sudden snowstorm. Uh, that was a funny one in a way. It wasn't so funny, but uh, my wife had a meeting with someone who happened to be a member of the church, might be watching, lives somewhere else now. And, and that person insisted on having this meeting. And I had a conversation 
conversation with them and with Debbie and said, look, I'm telling you, the forecast is going to be, it's going to be a quick storm, but it's going to come really fast, like three or four inches in an hour. And, and you don't want to be on the road. You're going to get trapped. Don't do this. He said, oh, you know, I got a four wheel drive. It won't be a problem. Everybody else doesn't have a four wheel drive. And lo and behold, I, I went home and said to Debbie, I hope I'll see you tonight. And, um, and she went to this meeting because she really didn't, didn't have a choice. And this, this, this storm came suddenly and um, she wound up being dropped off about a mile from our house and walking the rest of the way in the snowstorm. And that gentleman that I talked to, a part of Columbia, wound up spending the night in McDonald's near my house. And, um, you know, because, because at the end of the day, all of us, uh, we think that we know better and we think we're making the right calls and the right decisions, but, but sometimes we're not. So when all these people got trapped on 95, this was the picture. We saw picture after picture like this. They're down around Stafford, Fredericksburg, wherever they are, somewhere between Richmond and D.C., this long line of traffic, people trapped there, you know, 24 hours or 18 hours or whatever the case may be. And of course, one of the things about the news is you always will hear the interviews of the common persons who've experienced this. So we got people on telephones. We even got a senator. That was kind of kind of intriguing. That's some famous people that were sort of in this line. And we get these, these interviews and they all essentially are saying the same thing. You know, they're going, somebody's got to do something about this. I mean, who messed up on this? Somebody has got to change this. And, and, and no doubt there, there probably is a lot that could be done better. And, and I don't want to absolve any leaders from their responsibility to make sure that lanes of traffic are open when they need to be. But the forecast was for snow at a rate of about three inches an hour in that section of I-95. And, and of course, there is the occasional family that was coming from Florida when they left. It was 70 and sunny. They couldn't possibly believe such a thing. They didn't check the forecast. They got caught unawares. But for the vast majority of people who were on that highway, they knew the conditions they were going to be driving in. And you just kind of sit there and wonder, how did, how did that decision become logical? How did it become a smart thing to do. So one woman's being interviewed. She was on the road, three people in her car, and she said, you know, somebody has got to do something about this. This has got to be, somebody messed up on this one. She said, we were in our car all night with a quarter tank of gas, a pack of nabs, and a Dr. Pepper, and we didn't even have coats. Now, this is when, when you want to, but you can't. You know, you hear that and you think, but you don't say anything because you don't want to blame the victims. You have to be careful here. But, but I, I can speak what you wanted to speak, I think. So I wanted to put on my counselor hat. So when you're in seminary, you'll be taught at some point, uh, Christian, you'll be taught empathic response. Empathic response is sort of like co coaching methodology. And what you do in empathic response is you ask questions that essentially repeat back to the person what they're saying so that they hear it outside of their body and they, they sort of get their own opportunity to make their own way. So a, a lot of really good counseling sessions don't have any advice in them to speak of at all. They're, they have to do with coming out, and I've been on in those. I'm not just, I mean, as someone sitting in the chair, not someone doing the counseling. Coming out on the other end and being at a different spot just because you took stuff out of your head and you, you sort of rolled it around and looked at it and thought about it. 
So I found myself wanting, wanting to be a counselor and to, to utilize empathic response. So this person says, so we were in the car for 20, somebody's got to do something. This is somebody's fault. Somebody's got to do something because we were in the car for 24 hours with a pack of nabs and a Dr. Pepper and no coats. So as an empathic counselor, you want to say, with your pen in your hand, you say, so, so you were on a snowy highway with a pack of nabs and a Dr. Pepper and no coats and a quarter tank of gas. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Intriguing. That's, a, that's, a, that's interesting. So if you're, you know, a famous politician, you left at one o'clock, one o'clock from Richmond for an evening meeting, and at one o'clock it was snowing three inches an hour in Stafford, Virginia. Three inches an hour. And so you want to say, but you couldn't do this because this is, this, this person, I mean, this is a person with some gravitas, but you want to go, so, so you left your house at one o'clock with a tank of gas and you got on I-95, which you drive almost every day, so you know it is almost impassable on a good day, right? I mean, that highway stinks on a good day. You got on that highway with God and everyone at one o'clock in the middle of a snowstorm to get to D.C. Uh-huh. Interesting. See, these things are, are intriguing. Not, not one person I heard interviewed said, what a bonehead I was to get on that highway in the middle of a snowstorm. Am I right? I mean, no one, every, it's always someone else's fault. There's got to be somebody else to blame. And that's human nature. At least it's my nature to think first that this couldn't possibly be my fault because I can't possibly really be this dumb. But there are a lot of times that I really need to look at myself in that mirror we talked about list where we can go, you're dumb. You do things that are illogical. You think in ways that are irrational. You don't make sense to yourself, much less to anyone else. There are a lot of times where we really just need to confess that the problem is within us. And that, that's the deal with defensiveness. It's how being offended easily really does make us miserable because it keeps us from being righteous. It makes us think we're right, but it keeps us from being righteous. See, defensiveness bypasses true repentance and growth. When we are offended, when we are defensive, we have taken ourselves out of a learning posture and we have tried to put ourselves in a teaching posture. And if you're teaching, you can certainly still be a learner, but if you're teaching, you necessarily have to have mastery of the topic that you're covering. And when we're defensive and irrational, we really don't quite analyze the situation correctly. Now, I, I can't say everyone does this. There may be some of you out there, and if so, I'd like to hear from you too, who somehow mastered this. You, you, you're never like this. You're not easily offended in any way. You're not defensive, 
But everyone I'm hearing from so far is saying, man, I got to tell you, I'm glad you said that because all I could do was say, you must have been talking to me. No, I'm preaching to me. If you happen to overhear, then it's the Holy Spirit, which makes it a little more dangerous for you. Now, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 19 is a magnificent verse for us. And I try to choose always in these series sort of a key verse that summarizes everything. And this is the one. I love this. I love this scripture. And the more I read it and what I do with these is as a part of my daily Bible reading, I'll start here and I'll read this scripture, just this one verse over and over and over again until I feel like it sort of sinks in. So, so Solomon says, and read it with me again, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. This is a beautiful verse because it says two things that are, that are vital. The first is the one I dealt with last week, which is it is a glorious thing for us to overlook offenses. It, 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 is, it is the better part of us to overlook offenses, to choose to give up the right to be offended. That is our glory. It is when we are like, like God, and I'll deal with this a little bit later. It is, it is when we are righteous instead of right, and it is better to be righteous than it is to be right. At least most days I think that. And, and that's great, but look at the first part. It is wisdom that leads to patience. When we are patient, we are wise. It's not just that we're forbearing or, or that we're weak. Or, we are wise when we are patient. Now, I, I've been looking at a number of scriptures, but the one that's hardest hitting, I started, I almost started with this one and then decided we needed to work our way to it, at least a week to sort of get to this point because the hardest teaching on this for me comes straight from Jesus. And it's, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And what makes this one, before I read it, what makes this one hard for me is that Jesus is not just dealing with people who do not mean to offend me, but do. So, you know, that's, that's common. I mean, this happens all the time. A person is not really trying to offend you, but they say something that strikes a nerve, and you are defensive immediately. And the best thing to do at that point would be to say to them, let me tell you why that offends me, or let me ask you what you mean by that, or whatever the case may be, but you go on high alert immediately and, and you start to push back. And we can deal with those things more easily because the person means no harm. But Jesus' teaching is about people who mean to offend us. Jesus' teaching is about people who mean to hurt us. Jesus' teaching is about people who are mean. And, and so when I read this, it gets it gets much more difficult for me to just go, yeah, I can, I can do that. So this is Matthew 5. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. It's also in Luke, as you know, as the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus says this in Luke in a smaller form, but in Matthew, what's recorded is a, a piece of his grand sermon, and it says this, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Retribution, equal response. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. I, I, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Even if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to them the other cheek also. 
Now, before we go further, let's deal with this word resist because I start to wonder what exactly is Jesus trying to tell me? And why is it a problem? Is there, there's a big part of me, and I think of you too, that thinks defending myself, my honor, my family, my, my way of being, my way of life, my country, whatever the case may be, that that's always right. There's a, a part of me that feels righteously indignant in my resistance to something that I perceive to be evil, something that I perceive to be counter to what I love most and, and value most. I think self-defense is probably not only embedded into our law, but it's embedded into our psyche. This notion that we always have the right to resist. And, and that may even be true. Is legally, we may have a right to resist. Jesus is dealing with whether it is always right to resist. Having a right and whether something is right turn out to be two very different things on a regular basis. And we seldom sort those out. We seldom deal with what is really righteous in the eyes of God. So what does Jesus mean by this, this resist? Well, the Greek word that's used to capture Jesus' language here, again, Jesus is speaking Aramaic. And so, so Matthew captures this with a really interesting word. And that word is ante, ante, you got that part, stinai which you can sort of look at and tell exactly what it means. It means to set against. It means to set oneself completely against something. Now, the problem with setting myself against something is that I put myself into a position that is immovable completely. And in reality, whatever I'm set against, or in this case, who I'm set against, defines me no less than if I were to actually go along with that other person. So there are two ways that I can control you. This is kind of interesting, and I've talked about this before, but one of those ways is to force you to do what I want you to do. But the other way is to get you to spend all of your time and your energy resisting me so that what you're actually doing, everything about you is defined by your resistance of me, by your being set against me. So I have redefined you, or more likely, you have allowed yourself to be redefined by this conflict that you perceive you have with me. Jesus very simply, very simply did not want for his followers to waste all of their energy setting themselves against things that God was going to take care of. He did not want them to spend all of their energy standing against everything that they perceived as threats. Because when we do that, we are taken off of our course. We are taken off of our mission. And frankly, if you, if you tell me that I can get you off course I don't really need for you to win the game, and I don't need to win the game. I've already gotten you locked into a set position. You know, if I were Satan, and I'm not, just to be clear, but if I were Satan and I wanted to sidetrack the church of Jesus Christ, I would get it to waste all of its energy being set against everything and being set against each other. And if I could accomplish that, I could get it to get off of its mission of glorifying God and leading people to Christ, seeking and saving the lost. And that's precisely, friends, if you want to be frank and honest, that's what's happened to the church in America. 
<laughs> I mean, let's think about it, okay? Record numbers of people are choosing not to go to church. I mean, the statistics are, are, are alarming. We are missing an entire couple of generations of people who could be followers of Jesus in the church and are choosing not to be there. The church is in dramatic decline if you just count it by attendance and resources, etc. Fewer people are following Jesus in our culture than ever have in any time in our remembered history, and we think the biggest problem that we have is not that. It's something else. So if our attention can be diverted toward how offended we feel, how put off we feel, how defensive we feel, Satan wins the game. I'm just not willing. I'm just not willing to be defensive and to operate in that posture anymore. Jesus did not call us to be on the defensive. This is really clear, and I'm telling you, it's unambiguous in his teaching. Jesus did not call us to be defensive. He called us to go on the offensive with his love. And we can't be on the defensive and on the offensive with his love at the same time. In fact, I'm going to deal with this another week, but there's only one time in all of the New Testament that we're told to defend something. We're told to be prepared to give a defense for the gospel. Defensiveness is about us. We're told to be ready to defend the gospel. Now, Jesus, again, so unambiguous. Do not resist the evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, the shirt off your back, then hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with them too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you think this teaching is hard today, you need to put it in the context of the first century church. The early Christians were literally persecuted, not figuratively, not politically, not legally. They were literally persecuted. Their homes were burned. Their property was taken. They often were martyred or killed. They were under threat all of the time. This happened in waves, but it happened constantly. They were constantly being compelled into duty. They were the lowest of the low. They were asked to carry soldiers' packs a mile all the time. This happened every day. This is not a figurative thing here. This literally happened to them. And Jesus was essentially saying to them, you have more power than you think because you surprise the other when you do what they did not expect you to do by making the choice to serve, by making the choice to love. Now, what happened, of course, is that Christianity became the, the premier moral force on the face of the planet. It became the premier religious expression in all of the history of the world. How did that happen? Because those early Christians did not out-argue the culture. They were not defensive. They outlived, they outloved, and they outdied the pagans. It's that simple. And people watched their power, their capacity to make decisions like these, 
and it literally changed the world. And it still will. But it's hard because if you're like me, you are easily offended and you're on the defensive more than you'd like to admit. How can we live these things that Jesus is calling to us to do? He says the reason that we should pray for those who persecute us, love our enemies, is so that we can be children. Listen carefully to this. We can be children of our Father in heaven. See, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus says. In other words, it's up to God how he'll handle such things. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Pardon to those of you who are working for the IRS. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be what? Perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this verse is a trap for me. Because here I've got Jesus telling me to be precisely what I want to be, which is perfect. So I've got Jesus feeding my perfectionism. So what does Jesus mean by this? Does he actually mean perfect in the sense that I'm always right? Does he actually mean perfect in the sense that I am morally upright and pure? No, he means this in the context of retribution and the way society sees woundedness, offense, defensiveness. So I again have to go to the Greek here to understand what Jesus says. And the word that's used in the Greek by Matthew to talk about Jesus' language is the word teleoi. And teleoi does not mean perfect in the way that I was just talking about it. It means complete. It means whole. In fact, it means complete in the sense of fulfilling that which was created to be. So meeting its higher purpose or its higher end. So Jesus is saying, look, God meets his higher end or higher purpose all the time. He is constantly on his mission. He never fails to be exactly who he is. He is righteous. He is holy. He is precisely what we want to be. So if we're going to be his children, Jesus is saying, we have to also fulfill our mission. And if we are defensive, we get off our mission. If we spend all of our energy resisting everything we perceive to be a threat, we become something other than what God has called us to be. This teaching is so counterintuitive and so difficult that I have always grappled with it. If you, exactly what do I do with this? This is the hardest teaching to me in all of what Jesus asks me to do and to be. I can try to be more pure and holy, and, and I can try to love more. But when you tell me not to resist the person who offends me, I find that to be incredibly difficult. You know, defensiveness just gets us in all kinds of horrible places. Sometimes the humor of the moment can cause you to see how ridiculous something is. I remember uh, when Debbie and I were younger, we had, uh, we had some struggles as a couple to make uh, ourselves who God was calling us to be. And it had to do just we were two strong-willed first children in a marriage, and both of us were right all the time, which of course is impossible, right? But just so you know, I was the one who was right. But we, we, we were constantly at war with one another 
about who was going to be in control of what was going on. So we went to a counselor, a really good counselor. I mean, this counselor was really awesome, and uh, she really helped us, and she told us something that you've been told too. So this is not new advice. This is like old-time counselor advice, and that is, listen, when you guys are talking, what you're doing is you're arguing irrationally, totally set against each other, and so instead, try to share your woundedness. And I'm going, okay, we'll try to do that. She goes, no, I mean, you, you gotta really share your heart and your feelings and talk about why this is impacting you the way it is. Okay, we'll try to do that. She says, well, I want you to do something. This is an exercise you can do. Whenever you're discussing something, at least until you get the hang of this, you have to start every single sentence with I feel. Have you, have you, now some of you are going to say that's ridiculous, but just try it sometime, okay? Because you're really, instead of talking about what the other person is doing or, or even trying to analyze the situation, you're just sharing your feelings in the moment. And that allows the other person to encounter you genuinely. Because when people are set against each other, they are not encountering each other genuinely. They are encountering who each other perceive each other to be and who they perceive each other to be. And so she's like, get it all out there. So start every sentence with, I feel. Just, just try this sometimes. So, you know, you're supposed to say, instead of saying, you're wrong about this because it's supposed to be done like this, you're supposed to say, like, when you do this, I feel this way. So it's kind of helpful. So we're in the middle of this argument. I don't even remember what the argument was about. It's like almost every argument we've ever had. I cannot remember what it was about. She does, by the way, but that's another story. So I cannot remember what we were debating or arguing about. And in the middle of this, she said something that was just completely inappropriate and she offended me. And, and I, instead of saying to her, this offends me, I said, didn't you hear the counselor say that you're supposed to start every sentence in this discussion with I feel? And see, you didn't do that. So the counselor gave me ammunition. See here, you didn't do that. And she said, okay, I feel that you are a jerk. And I started laughing so hard. And then she started laughing so hard that we immediately forgot what the conversation was even about. The whole thing just seemed preposterous and ridiculous. And that one moment of levity just sort of, and it didn't take us long, frankly, to get into the habit of saying, you know, this is what I'm feeling. This is where I am. I'm having a hard time with this. I'm struggling with this. How about you? And those conversations completely change in tone because defensiveness robs us of any rationality in the conversation. It robs us of any feeling in the conversation. It robs us of ourselves, and it robs us of each other. Now, that wasn't my enemy, but if we're prone to make those closest to us our enemies sometimes, if we're prone to make those we love our enemies sometimes, if we're prone to make each other enemies sometimes, then what are we going to do when we actually encounter someone who means us harm? Someone who clearly wants to disempower or hurt us. What are we to do about that? Jesus was incredibly clear. Not only that, but Jesus modeled this. So I love the way Peter tells this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. 
Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, to his heavenly Father. Therefore, he himself could bear our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live by righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus did not just preach this, but very clearly he practiced it. I don't think any of us will ever be able to imagine what it was to be insulted the way that Jesus was. A completely innocent man who never even sinned, never hurt a single human being, a a completely, a man devoid of guile completely, and, and yet he was tried, persecuted, spit upon, scourged, beaten, mocked, derided in every way, carried to the cross naked and crucified. And he had all the power in the world to defend himself. He could have at any point stopped that whole thing. But he did not. And the reason he did not is that resisting would have taken him off the mission of saving the world from its sin. If he were to fall into the trap of sin and shame that taking offense creates... If he were to become defensive, then he could no longer be the spotted lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so that makes sense to us. So we look at it and say, yeah, but that's Jesus and he was the son of God. So see, that's different than me. That's Jesus. He was the son of God. And what we do when we do that is, I've said in the past, we make Jesus the superhuman and then we're only human. But that's not biblical. It is, in fact, heretical. Jesus is not the superhuman. He is the complete human. Perfect, complete, exactly what God intended us to be. He is what Adam and Eve were supposed to be. He is what we are supposed to be. He is the second Adam or the last Adam, as Paul calls him. Jesus is not the superhuman. We are the subhumans because of our sin and shame. And we are called to be like him in the world. And again, as Jesus said, the reason you do this is so that you may be what? Children of your heavenly Father in exactly the way that Jesus is. He became what we are so that we can become what he is. So we're trying to be whole humans, complete humans. And in order to do that, somehow, we've got to get beyond this defensiveness and to a different place. The question is, can we? What would happen if Christians actually listened to Jesus and mastered this art? What could we accomplish if we weren't taken off our mission. I told you last week that a lot of people hit me up immediately when they read the notes that I wrote. I write a set of sermon-based notes every single week in preparation for this, and many of you, all of you should, but many of you do. In small groups, you digest those notes and deal with this sermon material, and I get a lot of feedback from that. So people are telling me, we talked about this, and this is what we talked about. It's so helpful to me, so amazing when you take it one step deeper. When I hear something, go, I didn't even think about that. That's incredible. That's rich. That's amazing. So, So anyway, I sent the notes out, and within hours, 
hours of sending them, I got several responses. And those responses would have come from the leaders of these groups. They're the only ones that see them. And all of them were exactly the same. So I've saved this to tell you to, and here's what they said. And and this is what I I immediately knew. Uh, I immediately knew this sermon series was right because of this. And they said, this reminds me of this situation. Those people over there need to stop being defensive. Those people need to stop being offended. Those people need to stop with their victim mentality. And in all three cases, the responses dealt with the issue of race. I found that intriguing. Not a single person immediately hit me up and said, man, this, is, this hits home. I need to stop being so defensive. I need to sit down and talk to people. I need to listen. I need to learn. Not a single person. Now, since the sermon last week and since these small groups actually got together, that's what I'm hearing now. So what happens is initially we're defensive, but then if we really will allow it to sink in, we will come to a place where we are thinking about things a little differently. At least we're ready to learn. But initially they said, see, this is, this is them at the center of every single problem that our culture faces is defensiveness. I've become convicted that we have people who are hollering at each other from vast distances, not sitting together, and they are failing to understand what the other group is really saying, which is usually I feel hurt and you are, you are defending yourself, but you are offending people like me and you're not listening to me and no one feels listened to and therefore no one is listening. But the way this is solved is not by saying you're not listening to me, it's by starting to listen. I can't control you. I can only control me and that's hard enough. We have to be the ones to take the initiative, friends. I love what MLK said about this. Tomorrow's MLK Day, and uh, MLK Day is just a, a magnificent opportunity for us to listen, in my opinion. And MLK, in uh, one of his sermons, said this, here's the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence. It's so intriguing, isn't it, that, that this, is, this is one man who really did try to practice it. I'm not saying he got it all right, but Nonviolence. We're, we're just going to be present as who we are. And, and without taking up weapons, we will not defend ourselves. Here's the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence. When it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn to grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. That is, friends, ironically, the person who offends us probably has more to teach us than anyone else. What causes us to be defensive probably gives us a clue that there's something here that begs to be dealt with and bathed in the love of Jesus. We may not be completely wrong, and it doesn't even matter 
We just need to give up sometimes our right to be offended in order to be righteous. It is better to be righteous than it is to be right. I have to tell myself this regularly. It is better to be righteous than it is to be right. So strategy number one last week I gave you was engage instead of enrage. And a couple of you actually said to me, I've tried to practice this. So when I'm angry, it gives me a clue that I need to ask more questions, enter more deeply into the conversation, try to hear what the person is really telling me. And strategy number two this week is this, respond rather than resist. Our immediate temptation when we're threatened is to immediately resist. And when we resist, we have pushed the other person away from us and we have put ourselves in a posture that is hard to get out of. We rope ourselves into a corner. We buy into the trap that's been set for us of sin and shame. And now we become immovable. Once we have spoken out loud our resistance, it's hard for us to back away and say, maybe I wasn't right about that. So responding means to stop for a second and look at that gap that exists between the stimulation and the response and ask, Lord, what would you have me to do with this moment? To respond like Jesus means, in essence, to say, I will not let you make me your enemy. I will not allow you the privilege of making me your adversary. I will choose to be exactly who I am. When we take offense, we are defensive and self-deceptive. So our goal is always to learn and not just burn. Now the danger of preaching something like this is that after you preach it, you have to try to live it. I wish all of you had to preach. Because when you lay it out there, you're immediately held accountable to it. So this week, I had one interaction in which I immediately became defensive. And the person who offended me had heard my sermon and looked at me and went, and I went, you're right. Exactly right. I got to tell you something just so you'll know and hold me accountable to it when you see it. I am never dumber than when I am defensive. How about you? Listen, folks, don't get on a snowy, snowy highway with a pack of nabs and a Mountain Dew. <laughs> Father, we pray that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit, though. So we can seek to live out these difficult teachings of your son Jesus. Help us truly to love everyone, even the person we perceive to be our enemy. And Lord, may many more be saved by this love from the need to be defensive and the right to be offended. Because truly, we can love life more when we live out your love. Help us to desire righteousness more than rightness in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, I love you. Stay safe. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. I'll see you soon. Hey. 
thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.